Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey listeners, this is Sarah Archer. Before we get started with today's show, I have a quick word. Charlotte Reader's podcast now has podcast books. It's true, we have two kinds, fiction and nonfiction. Our fiction book is titled Death by Podcasting, co-written by Landis and me. It's a comedic mystery where we make fun of podcasters and writers in the vein of only murders in the building. It was a lot of fun to write, and it's available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. We also have eight nonfiction quote books created from over 500 podcast interviews. The Right Quote series is a collection of inspirational and practical quotes about writing, publishing, and book marketing from the first four years of the podcast. The books come with forewords and reflections by Hannah, Landis, and me. They're available in paperback and ebook. And here's a bonus. The first ebook in the series about the writing life can be downloaded for free. You can find links for all nine books at the podcast books page of charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. And if you read our books, thanks for reading. Now let's get on with the show. In this episode 376, we welcome back Charlotte novelist Mark DeCastric, author of 23 novels. Today, we're focused on his novel, Dangerous Women, the latest in this series featuring Ethel Fiona Cresswater, a 75-year-old retired FBI agent who now rents rooms to active agents and is the smartest and most fearless of anyone in her household. Publishers Weekly gave Dangerous Women a starred review, calling it a bewitching political thriller. And Library Journal, with its own starred review, says... Politics and climate issues are entangled in a complex case that still has moments of humor. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Landon. It's great to be here. Yeah, great to have you back. You know, it's hard. You know, you were one of our early guests. You also uh, helped us record some early videos. It's been a while since uh, we had you on the show. Uh, gosh, three hundred or more episodes ago. But uh, and you've done a few things since then. You've written probably four or five more novels since then, and you've come up with this very interesting character we're going to talk about today. Uh, how do you keep up that pace, Mark? Well, I just try to try to write a little bit every day wherever I am, and, uh, and, and I worry about my characters, what's, what, what trouble they've gotten into, and am I going to be able to get them out? And sometimes it's uh, you over, overwrite and uh, wind up uh, not even knowing how you're going to be able to rescue the characters. Yeah, well, 23 novels, is, I mean, that's quite an accomplishment. When you started doing this, did you have any idea you'd end up with 23 published novels? No, I wanted to do four. I was first series I wrote was a funeral director up in the fictional town in the mountains, and I wanted to do four to take the reader through the seasons of the mountains. Uh, the, you know, the summer people as opposed to the winter people, not only them, but also the foliage and things, so... But, you know, I enjoyed writing so much and, uh, and just kept at it that uh, over the 20 years, you start to accumulate a body of work, good, bad, or indifferent, they're, mm-hmm. they're there. That was the Sam Blackman series? Is that the one in Ashland? That was Barry, Barry and Barry. Okay, Barry and Barry. Yeah, that- Barry, Barry and Clayton. Sam Blackman then came later. Okay. Well, tell them why Barry and Barry was uh, called what he is. Uh, Barry was a funeral home director <laughs> and... Uh, he was nicknamed that in junior high school by his nemesis, Archie Donovan, who they're both adults now, and, and Archie is just one of these tone-deaf people that says stuff that 
doesn't mean to insult you, but does insult you. And so Barry and Barry, his nickname kind of stuck with him so that anybody who calls him that goes way back to elementary school with him. Because? Yeah, when I was uh, uh, a kid, uh, I went from the hospital to the funeral home where my dad was the funeral director, <laughs> and uh, we lived upstairs. So <laughs> Barry Clayton was the guy I might have turned out to be if my dad had stayed in the funeral business. So the... This uh, so you've written you know you wrote that series then you wrote the Sam Blackman series you wrote a thriller that was set in D.C. based upon your experience uh, you know working up there uh, and now you've gotten to Ethel which we're going to talk about today I'm I'm curious do you think when you first started writing because um, you weren't the same age then you are now do you think you could have written Ethel uh, as well then as as you're writing her now. I don't think so. You know, Ethel and I are now the same age. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm her contemporary, so the 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 uh, the impact of being 75 and uh, all the accompanying uh, challenges that come with that, I I press on to Ethel, and Ethel's kind of my alter ego because she's still got the brain power and the physical <laughs> strength, even though she's like five foot one, five foot two. Uh, when I was writing her, I had in my mind uh, Ruth Gator Ginsburg. And what she would look like if she were had been an FBI agent as opposed to a Supreme Court justice. So that was my role model, and uh, and I feel like uh, at, now that I'm at that age, I can relate a little better than if I had been 45 and trying to write a 75 year old character. Yeah, and that's a great uh, great connection, great inspiration for a character. But speaking of character inspirations, you told a story uh, at a book signing you had at Parker Books with this book about how. Uh, Ethel came into your world and into your brain and into your consciousness. Uh, could you tell that story again, the story of Ethel's creation? You were on a plane. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Ethel was really a gift to me. Um, <clears throat> I was flying back from a book event in Phoenix and sat beside a young woman. We started talking, and I asked her uh, if she lived in Charlotte, because that's where our flight was headed. And she said, no, she was uh, going to Charlotte and then changing planes and going to Washington, D.C., to visit her great aunt, who was 85 years old, and she lived in the house she was born in, which I thought was kind of intriguing to, to one, I didn't know anybody who actually lived in the house they were born in, and let alone in D.C. that has a lot of, a lot of turnover over 85 years. And I said, Does other, do other family members live with her? And the young woman said, no, said, uh, she's the only family member in the house. She said, but but we don't worry about her because she rents out rooms to Secret Service and FBI agents, and we always know there's somebody in the house with a gun. And so I thought, wow, you know, what an interesting character. So that was the that was the germ of uh, of Ethel. And I had a friend uh, who was my actually friends of my parents um, who had told me that when she was uh, 14 and going to high school in in D.C. She would go down after school to the FBI building and work in the fingerprint department. So I thought, now that would be something that would round out Ethel, uh, that she was actually kind of grew up in the FBI, knew J. Edgar Hoover, knew, knew the, 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 the players, and had been a career uh, special agent. So it, it gave her kind of the skills and the, and the uh, contacts uh, since she was renting out rooms to uh, FBI and Secret Service agents as they came through the academy or came through temporary assignments, she got to know everybody, which now has, means she's on a speed dial basis with the head of the FBI and the head of the Secret Service 
and the homicide detective for the Arlington police. So she kind of crosses territorial jurisdictions however she wants to, bending the rules, even breaking the rules, uh, if it serves her purpose. Yeah, well, that, that's a great uh, example, of, you know, because they ask authors all the time, where do you get your ideas? And I think it was Elizabeth Gilbert who talked about how you just had to pay attention. The universe uh, was going to gift it to you if you were quick enough to grab it and run with it. Uh, maybe you'd you'd use it uh, before somebody else. I mean, it, hap- it happened to me with my novel, Daily Declarations, when I did an interview on the podcast where I had Scott Seifert on, and he started telling me all these stories about the mech deck that I had never known, all the conspiracies that were built into it. And I thought, well, that that's kind of, I mean, that's that's a much better idea than what I'm working on right now, <laughs> right. <laughs> right now, right now. And uh, so, and it it, it gives you. I love the way that that that, that works. But uh, speaking of uh, how you took it a step further with the FBI connection, how did you acquire that knowledge, Mark? Because the books in this series, um, I mean, you're you're Ethel's been on the inside. She knows how you know government works, how the FBI works. She's got a lot of knowledge. Um, how have you acquired that information over the years? That how the Secret Service works, how the FBI works. Uh, who the players are, that kind of thing? Well, I've just talked to people uh, who were in those worlds. Uh, I had an afternoon with a Secret Service agent who kind of walked me through the responsibilities that he had, and I, I learned that they're not only presidential and vice presidential protection uh, details that they work with, but they are uh, work with uh, counterfeiting and money money laundering and things like that, that that I hadn't realized the Secret Service was involved in. I also talked to a former deputy U.S. attorney, attorney general, uh, about jurisdiction. Like if, if a body is found in D.C., you know, but it's a federal agent, who has jurisdiction? Um, where, do, where are they in competition for it? Do they always cooperate? Do they live in silos and, and uh, not communicate mm-hmm. with each other? And so that kind of helps put uh, a layer of conflict in the story, which uh, you know, and I know, that's what the reader really gets engaged with is uh, com- as characters who are in conflict with either one another or with Mother Nature or whatever the obstacles are that are keeping them from getting their getting their goals. And uh, and then I'll, as the books come out, uh, like you said, when your podcast with De- Deadly Declarations, you kind of hear some stories because people share their own knowledge about it. Uh, I've had people kind of talk to me about guns to use and uh, technical matters <laughs> that uh, sometimes I don't even know the right questions to answer. So right. you kind of go, th- go through your day attuned to anything you might pick up that can apply to your character or to your plot. Now, when I started Ethel and I knew I wanted her to be my main character, I didn't have a plot idea. And so, uh, so she really grew, those stories really grew out of her character, which I like, frankly, I like writing out of character even more so than writing out of out of plot. Mm. Yeah, and this jurisdictional fight that you talk about, that's a that's a fun trope that we see in a lot of mysteries and thrillers like, uh, you know, the big guys are coming to town, they're going to take the case away from the little guys. Well, who, who's going to have jurisdiction, the feds or the locals? And if the feds take over, the locals are going to stay involved. And it seems like Ethel, jurisdictional issues don't bother Ethel. <laughs> she... No, she's going to go in no matter who's got jurisdiction. And right? and she learns things that she keeps to herself because she knows right. it'll be taken away from her. So um, she's she's not going to give up because, frankly, Landa, she's the smartest one in the room, any room, any time. Mm-hmm. So you can't yeah. blame her for uh, controlling the the flow of information and uh, that that she learns through her own investigations. 
Well, before we talk more about the the book, um, your first book in the series, which uh, involved the, I think it was the, the cryptocurrency uh, issues uh, and the Secret Service and a lot, of, a lot of killing going on there too. But uh, you got a nomination for the Edgar's 2023 Sue Grafton Memorial Award for Secret Lives. Uh, I'm just curious. I've never never been to one of those events. How was it? It was a lot of fun. It was held in uh, the Marriott Marquis on uh, Times Square. And uh, I got to meet some of my heroes. Michael Connolly was the, the guest of honor for the event. And then they had a cocktail party for the finalists. And uh, I got to spend a little bit of time with one of my writing heroes, who was Anthony Horowitz, uh, who wrote, wrote Foyle's War and Magpie Murders and, uh, and just was so prolific, Alex Ryder for young adults. So it was really fun to kind of, I was interested in picking their brain, um, you know, he asked me after I grilled him with these questions, said, well, tell me about your book. And I'm thinking, why would I want to tell you about my book? <laughs> I really want to hear about what, what, how you write and, and where your ideas come from. So it, you, would, you would enjoy it, Landis. It's, uh, it's yeah. a very collegial thing. You know, the, I was a finalist, one of five for that Sue Grafton Award. And it was not a competitive uh, kind of environment. Everybody was really just happy to be there and, and enjoy each other's company. So... Hopefully, maybe someday yeah. I'll be invited back. Well, that, I mean, that in and of itself is a huge award just to be a finalist for that. Uh, and I love, uh, I love Foles War. I watched it on, the, I think it was a PBS channel or something. Uh, it, was, it was a well-done series there. Um, so, uh, Mark, I think you've told me, uh, you've answered this question, why you wanted to bring Ethel back. I guess you were just having too much fun with her and she wouldn't leave you alone. Is that the idea? That's right. And you, you kind of wonder what she's up to. And, and you know, there are things that... Um, that interests me. Um, you know how it is. If you're writing a book, it usually takes you about a year from the start of, of uh, research and and starting to have a plot gel together uh, to what it's over. So you want the plot to be something that's of interest to you, since you're going to be involved with it so long. So I was interested in for Ethel. I was interested in cryptocurrency, uh, just because that whole phenomenon seems so. Uh, interesting and it also crossed over into secret service and fbi jurisdiction and um and so that 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 worked out for me and then i was interested in um electronic vehicles and the push for battery powered uh cars and and uh and suvs and what that was doing to the uh, to the world and also i was interested in the supreme court an institution third institution of the constitution and uh, how that may affect uh, Ethel, how could she be involved with them? And so I have these kind of little interests going on that I try to then mix into and fold into a plot line that uh, Ethel would be involved in. Yeah, um, I was going to ask you about the Supreme Court because that does figure prominently in this plot because uh, you've got two clerks that work for the Supreme Court who come home uh, in the first scene, and one of them's uh, murdered, and the other one is uh, struck unconscious and ends up in a coma. Um, and you've got a potential leak because there was information in the backpack of this one clerk. And uh, I presume, um, well, I know because you told us at the book signing, but uh, this great idea you had about a Supreme Court leak uh, came before the Supreme Court leak in Roe versus Wade, and then you had to sort of go back and uh, f probably f fit that into your 
plot line to make sure that people didn't think this was your an original idea. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was a surprise to me because I thought, <laughs> now the Supreme Court makes these decisions that affect corporations and individuals and 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 groups of people and whatever, and they've never had a leak. Whereas Congress leaks like a sieve, and and with insider trading, and and we had gone through COVID uh, briefings that various congressmen had been accused of, of allegedly selling off stocks and things like that because they knew it was coming through their secret briefings and that was not uh, considered you know right to, to use that information to profit from and so um, I thought well the Supreme Court stands there as some, something an institution that's never leaked so I wrote it that way and then sure enough the Roe versus Wade overturned at the Dobbs decision meant that there had been a leak. And so uh, it's interesting because I could create an entirely fictitious Supreme Court with a woman as the Chief Justice and, and uh, the other eight split conservative and, and liberal. And the reader would give me a pass, even though they were not the real Supreme Court justices. But if I'd said there'd never been a leak and there had been a leak, they would hold me accountable to that, uh, that they would not go so far as to let that be the case. So I had to go back and, and uh, change that aspect of the manuscript. It wasn't a big deal, but it was one of those things that when you're writing a topical novel that's, uh, that involves current events, you run the risk of having those current events change while you're writing the book, which means you have to go back and accommodate those changes uh, so that it's uh, more believable to the reader who is trying to suspend disbelief when they go with you and go with the story. When we took our children to the, the, uh, the visit to D.C. when they were young, we, we went to the Supreme Court. I didn't go there as an advocate. I almost got there once as an advocate, but uh, then the court denied <laughs> the cert, uh, so I didn't get up there to argue, but uh, I got up there to sit in the back and watch what was going on, and uh, my children, who were, I think, eight and ten or something at the time, were, like, so unimpressed. They were, they were looking up at the ceiling, counting the uh, tiles in the ceiling, I think, as the argument was going on. But I wonder where you got your knowledge. I mean, because I didn't learn a whole lot uh, sitting there in the gallery, other than pretty high ceilings, pretty long bench, uh, very muted kind of uh, professional environment. But I didn't know about the back elevators. I didn't know about the basketball court. So how did you learn what you uh, learned? A friend of mine was a law clerk for a Supreme Court justice. And so uh, she invited uh, my wife and I up to uh, to to hear a case or to be in the, in the courtroom when a case was being heard. So I got to uh, uh, kind of witness firsthand like you did. But then I got to talk to her about things that were maybe facts about the court, interesting things that people wouldn't know like the elevators are still manned, like above the courtroom where the cases are being heard, there's a full court basketball court above it, which I thought was fascinating <laughs> as well. And, and these are the little kind of tidbits that uh, you wouldn't necessarily know unless you were talking to someone who was daily involved in the court's proceedings. I had to learn, you know, how does a case get heard by the, uh, by the court? And it takes four justices to agree to to review a case or hear it, accept a case uh, before it's brought before the Supreme Court. So uh, they missed an opportunity to have you argue in front of them, Landis. That's probably something they all regret. <laughs> well, given the side I was on, it was a good thing I didn't go up there. That would have meant they didn't like, <laughs> like my side. Uh, but uh, 
Speaking of uh, the court, the court has a decision to make in in, in your uh, fictional book here, um, and it has to do with uh, this uh, these lithium batteries, and and there's a, a mining operation. Apparently, lithium mining can be rather destructive to the environment. Uh, so there's, but there but there's also a lot of uh, interest on both sides. So you've got these sort of interest groups pitted against one another. The, the people that want to save the economy, those that want to uh, arguably save the economy with uh, electric energy, but to do so have to destroy part of the, I mean, the envi- not the economy, the environment. Um, so talk about this thing, because I never knew how destructive to the environment lithium mining could be. Well, I, there was an article in the New York Times, uh, this is probably a year ago, 18 months ago, when I started writing, the, was looking for another case for, for Ethel to be involved in, that called lithium the new gold. And lithium is a key rare element that goes into the manufacturing of, of uh, batteries for electronic vehicles. And so the demand is great as we are trying to convert over to uh, renewable energy or electric uh, vehicles. And, um, and, I, and I had read about a case in Nevada where they were doing an open pit mining, uh, which they go down like 300 feet, like three football fields down, and it requires a lot of water to process, and it leaves the, 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 the earth toxic for up to 300 years. And I thought, well, there's a paradox. You're trying to mine lithium um, so that you can save the environment from fossil fuels while you're destroying the environment while mining the lithium. And that uh, there were interest groups on the other side, ranchers, because you're, you're in an area that's in a drought anyway, and if this groundwater is being used for, um, for the process of mining, it affects the livestock, it affects uh, the surface water, it affects the Native Americans there who have sacred lands that are, that are under federal control, and they gave, the federal government gave leasing mining uh, permits to various companies. It's not just out west, you know, we're sitting here in Charlotte, North Carolina, and over in Gastonia, there's a lithium company that's yeah. doing open pit mining or planning to start open pit mining by 2027. So it's it's in our backyard as well. The other point is that the U.S. produces about 2% of the world's lithium, which is way below what we should have because I could see us moving right back into another OPEC situation and uh, where production of this is compared to the production of oil um, that uh, you want to have domestic resources so that you're not being held hostage by countries that are hostile to to us uh, but control the world's lithium and cobalt and the things that are needed for um, for construction of batteries so when you had competing interests like that I thought I will go ahead and in my story have this case that uh, and this conflict come to the Supreme Court, and so people who would know the in advance that they figure the justices are tied, that the Chief Justice is going to cast the deciding vote, and whatever that vote is, is going to either accelerate the stock, raise the stock of lithium companies, or deplete the stock of, of reduce the value of the stock of lithium companies. So therefore, there was a motive of money. Uh, and not not just uh, independence for, for energy and for lithium, but 
how you could monetize that court decision if you got it in advance. And that's why the, um, the law clerks were attacked on their way from the Supreme Court to their, to their uh, home. They were going to work over the weekend on a case for the Chief Justice. And when they were attacked in the backpack with certain notes and, and, uh, and documents were stolen. Hey listeners, this is Sarah Archer with a brief request. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave us a short online review wherever you like to listen. Better yet, please tell your friends. If you do both, you get extra credit. Seriously, though, listeners learn about new podcasts by reviews and words of mouth. So when you help us spread the word about Charlotte Reader's podcast, more people meet our author guests and more readers and writers share our love of reading and writing. Thanks for listening. Now, back to the show. Yeah, and I think that's probably a good... uh partial setup for what you're going to read now um, because uh, we've got the attack, we've got uh, the, the law clerks, um, we've got one of them who's now uh, in a coma. It turns out that she is related to uh, one of the detectives uh, locally. And uh, so why don't you set that up and just read it whenever you're ready? Okay. Um, so the, the law clerk, uh, Robert Finley, is the chief justice's law clerk. He is killed. Brooke Chaplin is... Uh, the, the Supreme Court uh, Justice's law clerk for one of the associate justices. and But this section I'm going to read sets up where Ethel and her double first cousin, twice removed, Jesse Cooper, are apprehended by the police because they were caught breaking into their neighbor's house. Uh, but Ethel said they weren't breaking in. They were going there to collect his mail because he's out of, out of town for the month. And she was using the opportunity to have to teach Jesse how to pick a lock. So they were apprehended on the back door with their, his uh, uh, lock picks, trying to break in as an educational thing from, from Ethel when the police catch them and uh, handcuff them. And Ethel says, can I at least have my one phone call, which is to call her friend Frank Mancini, who is a homicide detective for the Arlington Police, and Frank um, laughs and says to leave them handcuffed until he can get there because he wants to see Ethel in handcuffs. He's been waiting for this for 30, 30 years. So, um, but as, as they're in Ethel's house, the uh, uniformed officers are there. Jesse and, and uh, Ethel are there. And uh, Frank is there. And Frank's cell phone goes off. And that's what I'm going to pick up with uh, in, the, in the book. An old-fashioned ringtone sounded. Frank stood, retrieved his cell, and checked the number. It's my niece. I'd better take it. He turned away and walked toward the kitchen. Hey, sweetheart, what's up? Sir, could you tell me your name, please? The male voice was flat, emotionless, too emotionless. A cold numbness began to spread from the pit of Frank's stomach. No, tell me who this is. Glenn Meadows. I'm a detective with the D.C. police. Frank's knees went weak. He leaned against the wall. Oh, God, he murmured. He caught movement from the corner of his eye. Ethel stood about a yard away. She'd sensed something was wrong. I'm calling on the cell phone of a woman who has been injured, Meadows said softly. I first tried a number marked Mom, but got no answer. This number is identified as Uncle Frank. Would that be you, sir? Yes, my name is Frank Mancini. I'm a detective with the Arlington Police Department. The phone belongs to my niece, Brooke Chaplin. What's her condition? 
The victim has been transported to the emergency room at MedStar Washington Hospital Center. I understand she was unconscious at the time. Can you give me a brief description so we know we're talking about the same person? 25, blue eyes, blonde hair, usually in a ponytail. That matches. Do you know how badly she's hurt, Frank asked. Just that it's serious. Does she know our Robert Finley? I've never heard her mention the name. Is Finley a suspect? No, she and Mr. Finley were found just inside the front door of his house. Looks like they just entered when a person or persons attacked them from behind. Mugging? That's certainly a possibility. We're hoping when your niece regains consciousness she can tell us what happened. Frank took some small comfort that the man said when and not if. Is your niece a student? Meadows asked. No, she's a law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Roland Parker. Then that's the connection. Finley was a clerk for Chief Justice Baxter. He and your niece were colleagues. Were? Frank knew the answer as he asked the question. I'm a homicide detective. Robert Finley died at the scene. So, with uh, Robert Finley dead and, and Brooke in, uh, in the intensive care at the hospital, that brings Ethel into it because she has a personal connection and, and people do not mess with her friends and her former rumors uh, or their families. And so that gives her the uh, impetus and the uh, desire to see justice done, if she, even if she has to bring it about herself. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a, a good scene. Um, and I think a few paragraphs later, Ethel hands the... Uh, her shackles back to the to the officers because she picked them while while she was in their presence. Um, she did, yeah. She 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 gave them. She took them to school on <laughs> on how to how to how how they should have treated a suspect that they didn't want to get away or get free with their own handcuffs. So yeah, and I, she's quite ingenious. And I like the humor too because also in that scene, uh, Frank describes himself as not being overweight, just under tall and. Uh, so where would you hear that, Mark? I, I've, I've, sh- I've used that several times since then, <laughs> that phrase. I, th- I think it was something my dad said <laughs> because he, he was like five foot six and, 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 and had a little more weight than he needed to. And so he would explain that, that he was not overweight. He was just under tall. So I love that. I use that myself <laughs> I love, sometimes. I love that. Um, so you have you have permission to steal that okay, line, man. That's however you want to use it. <laughs> there might be somebody in the retirement community who's not overweight but under tall. You know? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, so before we, uh, a few questions about writing, um, there was a character uh, who came in to the story, um, and his name is Lanny. Uh, when I worked construction right after Davidson, before I went to law school, we were the guys who carried everything for the high school non-graduates who were our supervisors on the construction sites and they couldn't get my name right as Landis. So they, so I became Lanny. So I'm just going to say that <laughs> I made a little appearance in your book here as a, had a little bit part. Tell, tell us what Lanny, Lanny was kind of a, he, he came in uh, from the FBI, right? Yeah. He's, he's a, he, he rooms with Ethel. Uh, he's a young, young guy kind of from the Midwest and yeah. uh, he's kind of uh, amazed at, at Ethel and that <laughs> Ethel knows everybody in the FBI that he reports to Ethel's on a first name basis with, with them. And I thought, and I thought maybe subconsciously Landis, I did name him <laughs> after you because I thought that's, a, that's an interesting name. It sounds like something that would be kind of unique to his character. And, uh, and he's a nice guy. 
like you are. So, uh, so, <laughs> well, so you can, uh, and he's and he's tall. He's not uh, he's not under tall. So he's fit and physical. And uh, so we were. I was either called College Boy by them, or or they knew my name was Landis eventually, but they stuck with Lanny the whole time. So <laughs> I had to get out of there and go back to school. So so I didn't have supervisors that, that had a lot less schooling than I did. Um, Let's talk a minute about uh, writing. One of the things that I appreciate about this book and the other book, and and as I've read your mysteries as well, you have a really good pace uh, to the book. This book especially uh, moved really quickly. And uh, I'm just wondering um, at what point in the writing process uh, you get that right. Because I know that as you're writing and you're trying to figure out where you're going, there's probably more there that has to come out. But when do you really turn your attention to, all right, we got to kind of leave cliffhangers at the end of par- uh, chapters. We've got to kind of make sure we don't have a lot of extra fluff. We want to keep things going. At what part in your process does that take hold? Usually on, on, the, on the first draft when you're hitting plot points, um, you know, how, mm-hmm. how does this chapter move the story forward and not only move the story forward but leave the reader wanting more? You know, the, the, mm-hmm. the best um, compliment I can get is someone says they're angry at me because I made them stay up late finishing the book. Yeah, and exactly. so, uh, you know, I, the chapters are not really long. There may be 10 to 15 pages, but I think that the key is that the reader has gotten some new information or been left hanging and is interested in trying to find out, has to find out exactly what the next steps were. And I don't outline a lot, but I'll work a couple chapters uh, ahead, kind of knowing where I'm going with a couple chapters ahead, which then helps me uh, distill it down to, um, uh, to what the essence is as far as the, the, the plot points and, and the beats. I do like to put humor in. I like to put banter between the characters. There's a lot of dialogue in my books, maybe more so than, than action. Um, some of that is just the nature of Ethel and her opinions uh, and her bri- brilliance that I like to, uh, to show off for, for her. Uh, and I think humor helps with pacing. Everything's not a car chase. Everything's not a fist fight. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, but, but that's got to be in there. Uh, the conflict's not only psychological mm-hmm. but also physical as well. And then, then I'll go back, kind of once I've got the, the, the outline, when, when I've got the first draft of the manuscript, and I'm looking at a whole story as opposed to pieces of a story that I'm trying to assemble together, then I'll go back and try to flesh it out even more, emphasize certain points, add a little more depth to the characters, um, and then work with, with an editor. I love working with an editor mm-hmm. because uh, they have mm-hmm. insights that I didn't see and that kind of is energizing uh, when you kind of see some suggestions that actually work and, and make the story better. I don't resent being asked to make changes because I know I trust my editor and we're both working for the same goal, which is to write the best story possible. Now, as a traditionally published author, um, and you're working with an editor that's working with the publishing company, um, how many, <coughs> excuse me, how many drafts uh, are you working with yourself and trying to self-edit and get things as, as tight as you can get it before you send to your editor? And then how long are you and your editor working together uh, before they can say, okay, this is, this is ready to, to go? Uh, each book is a little bit different. Um, normally I'll have done, uh, you know, you, with computers now, you kind of 
draft is make changes as you go or go back and pick up stuff as you as you go but I'd like to maybe have at least two good read-throughs of a complete manuscript before it goes to my editor uh, usually they're pretty clean uh, and she'll take a look at it uh, you know having not seen it before so she reads it as a as a first draft uh, all the way through and then what usually will happen is maybe there are things that are not clear that I had on my in my head but never got to the page you know I've been she's told me before you know no wonder I didn't get it you didn't put it in the <laughs> you didn't put it in the story you know it was a little too obtuse with what the plot line was going to be um, and then there sometimes she will say this payoff isn't big enough uh, I had something moved from a, a, a one location to a, to the Vietnam War Memorial for the climax when I had not planned to have it there because she said it needed to be a bigger bigger event and she was absolutely right I've had the editor tell me I'm not you're not going to let this character live she was just too evil that the uh, the reader is not going to be happy that she's not doesn't get her comeuppance <laughs> and then the very next book my editor said you're not going to kill this character he's too interesting and you may not <laughs> want to use him again so that's where uh, it's valuable to have someone with a fresh eye and also who reads a lot of mysteries and knows um, what what uh, engages a reader uh, that you kind of in a in a partnership with your editor uh, during the process. Yeah, the editor I've worked with uh, has sort of four things she likes to hit, and she says they are add, subtract, reorder, and clarify. And you talked about clarifying um, and, uh, you know, subtracting, I guess, can include subtracting a character before the book <laughs> finishes. Uh, anything uh, in this particular book in terms of reordering or, uh, or adding that came later um, after you worked with the editor? Uh, I think some of the, trying to think the, um, the, the end of that book um, without, without spoiling it for, for readers, um, I, th I think she looked at having Ethel still be in control even at the end uh, when she confronts the, the villain in a unique way. Um, my editor had, had wanted to make sure that uh, Ethel was um, front and center at it and not kind of uh, relegated to the, to the side in the final scene. So, you know, you've, your readers have lived with the characters and the plots and the challenges and stuff like that. You like to savor the end, and sometimes uh, I wrap, I, I'm so happy to be finished with the book that I wrap it up too soon. And uh, you know, there's that balance between the end of the story, get off the stage, you know, wrap it up, it's done, and then there's also the, the audience likes to revel with the main character in their success and, uh, and the way they uh, uh, bring the bad guys to, to justice. So oftentimes they'll have me work on the end just a little bit to flesh it out a little more and, and uh, take that balance between how soon do we end the story and how long do we hold the story. Uh, and it's got to be kind of like well-structured to be not too, like Goldilocks, not too short, not too long, but just right. Yeah, and that's a good point. I, I love I love mysteries and thrillers, of course, because I write that. But when I'm reading them, and you get to the end, and, and you have the big climactic scene, I don't like it when they just 
in the book right there. I like them to get together afterwards and, you know, they can do something fun together, but let's, let's sort of, you know, revel in our success here <laughs> and enjoy, enjoy the ending of this. And that's also where you can add a couple of uh, twists, things that you tie up that maybe weren't evident or apparent in the climactic scene itself. Right. One final twist is always kind of fun to, to have worked in, in with possible. Yeah. yeah. So a um, couple more questions here. You, you've been in the publishing industry for 23 years now, working uh, traditionally. A um, lot of change during that time, Mark. Um, what are your thoughts on what it was like when you started and what it's like now? Well, when I, when I started, uh, my publisher would release a hardback book and then uh, a year later come out with a paperback version. That was the kind of traditional way. And then ebooks really took hold and audiobooks have grown. And now books, uh, some of mine are, are soft paper, uh, not, not, not mass paperback, but soft cover books and uh, without the hardback edition. But they're all released all at once, uh, so you have so many buying choices now for the, for formats to to deal mm -hmm. with that you didn't have before, and uh, and and they've started putting uh, multiple reviews at the start of my books, to kind of try to market so people if they like this book would go back and pick up the backlist, and so one mm -hmm. thing I have now that I didn't have 20 years ago is a backlist of you know. 22 books uh, prior to uh, to the one that's Dangerous Women that just came out back in October of 2023. So I've seen that kind of change, the way books are, are marketed and, and brought. And, and uh, libraries carry softcover books now, which they didn't used to. And so um, uh, so that, that whole kind of phenomenon of, and it makes sense if you're going to do publicity and, and talk about the book to go ahead and have all of them available. Uh, all the formats available for the reader's choice. Yeah, and that's a good lesson for an indie author, too, that uh, it's not just about putting out your paperback or hardback. You ought to have your ebook ready and your audiobook ready So, because people read in all different formats, and you'd be amazed at where they, they read. They read they read books on their phone sometimes. They listen to books. They've got it all covered. Uh, all right, well, last question. I probably asked you this three or four years ago, but I'll ask it again. If you could tell your younger writing self something of value based on what you've learned in all these 23 years since then that might have helped your younger writing self either in the writing world or the publishing world? Uh, anything stand out? I think it would be to uh, just press forward with writing. Don't, don't let yourself get hung up uh, realizing that uh, so much of writing is unwriting. You know, I may go down a blind <laughs> alley or, or something like that that's, that, that I thought was going to work but didn't work. And, and it's kind of trust that you're going to find the story if you just kind of persevere and are persistent in, in going for it. Uh, I've written stuff that I've gotten down knowing that I'm going to come back and change it later, but I've got to try to discover the story. The story is out there. I don't mean to sound uh, odd, like there's some kind of channeling by the spirit world going <laughs> on, but, but I think the story is there for me to discover first and then, and then share with the... Uh, Share with the reader, uh, which means uh, don't get don't get hung up. Don't write the first chapter over and over again until you think it's perfect. Move on through. Uh, my daughter said she read a quote. She's a children's book writer that said the the last chapter you write is the first chapter because with the first chapter you're now looking ahead to everything that you know is happening in the story, which means that you want that first chapter to be tuned to set up to. Um, 
to get the story off to a great start in maybe a way you wouldn't have known if you, when you wrote the first draft of the first chapter. So that's something that I've come to accept is that uh, I'm going to have to rewrite. That's where the that's where the story finally comes together. Well, Mark, uh, you've been a great uh, supporter of the show. I've also really appreciated uh, what you've done with your writing, and you've been a big help to me in, in my writing. So once again, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show, and I hope that Ethel is going to come back uh, many times in the future because she's only 75 years old, right? <laughs> That's right. We're, she's got a lot of life left in her. I hope I do, too. And, and Landis, thanks for all you do to support the writing community, not only here in Charlotte, but across the, across the country. Congratulations on the success of the podcast and, and your own writing. And uh, anyhow, I'm, I'm really honored and, and uh, feel privileged to be able to be a guest now and then. Well, you'll be back. You'll be back. (laughs) Hey, folks, as we wrap up another episode, we just want to say thank you for listening. Um, We appreciate you being here and we hope you enjoyed the show. We also hope you'll join our community. To do that, feel free to poke around our website, charlotteleaderspodcast.com. The best way to stay in touch is to sign up for our twice monthly newsletter, and you can do that via the contact page on the website. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. We're not going to do that. You can also use our website to read our community blog and show notes, submit an elevator pitch to be played on the show, submit a blog post, give us feedback, submit to be on the show, become a Patreon supporter, and to see what's coming up on the show next, order our podcast books, or listen to previous episodes. So many things, and the best part, it's all free. Until the next episode, this is Hannah LaRue, and on behalf of Sarah Archer and Landis Wade, read on, write on, and rock on.